Hello, and thank you for being a member of the History of World War II podcast, Episode 178, Revenge from 16,000 Feet Below. Last time, we covered the sinking of the tanker SS Dixiero near Moorhead City, North Carolina. The crew had thought themselves safe because, one, none of the crew had told anyone of their current route, and two, everyone knew that German subs only attacked at night. The truth turned out to be, loose slips may not sink ships, but using established routes does. For the enemy sub simply has to wait in the vicinity, which didn't stop the U.S. military from spreading the rumor that loose slips do indeed sink ships. The truth was, America was still gearing up for the war, which manifested itself, at least off the North Carolina coast, as survivors of attacked ships to be left in the water or on life rafts for days, hoping, praying that help would come. Alas, there were times when help seemed to have arrived only to pass by those in distress, focused on their own safety. Of those merchant ships that passed by survivors, they had been told never to stop, for there was a good chance an enemy sub was nearby, waiting to make a victim of the would-be rescuer. The merchant captains consoled themselves and their crew by saying, no doubt a seaplane will be overhead soon to call in the Coast Guard, which happened, but not all the time. Not enough. Then again, there were those that could not help themselves but to stop and help those in need, like the schooner Herbert L. Rodding. She had come upon a lone lifeboat in March, and the captain right away ordered his ship to come too. Of course, not taking any chances, he had his men with rope ladders and netting ready to fairly jump over the side, grab up the people, pull them aboard, and then get the hell out of there. It was a risk, but most crew believed that any good deeds done today would pay off for them tomorrow. However, there were times when a crew would not have to suffer from exposure to the elements, for they were not lucky enough to survive the initial attack. One such example was the crew of the Panamanian manganese ore freighter Chinango. When the freighter was about 50 miles east of Curatuck Beach, on the northern end of the Outer Banks, she was hit by a well-placed torpedo. In less than two minutes, she was under, with the majority of her crew, 30 men. In fact, the only two survivors, James Bradley and Joseph Diltines, were still alive, as they had been thrown clear of the ship by the very blast that doomed the rest of the men. James and Joseph spent 12 days at sea on a raft. Several planes flew over them, but it's doubtful they were spotted, as no help came. The men spoke different languages, so could not even console each other. But each man watched out for the other as the days passed. Finally, on the twelfth day, an army patrol plane flew over, spotted the raft, and sent out the Coast Guard. The men were picked up and taken to Norfolk, Virginia. Sadly, Joseph, very weak from his injuries and exposure, did not survive, which left James Bradley as the sole survivor of the freighter. And there would be many other instances of sunken ships 
with survivors stranded on a raft for days, where some would survive and many would not. And Captain Lieutenant Reinhard Hartigan, the commander of U-Boat 123, would do everything he could to keep this ghastly trend going, as he and his returned to the North Carolina area in late March. On March 2, 1942, U-123 had left France, and Hartigan made a beeline for Cape Hatteras to help, in part, cut the vital artery of material being sent north so it could join with other ships and then head to Britain. But even before reaching his favorite hunting ground, U-123 came upon the tanker Tuskogee, about 975 miles east by northeast of the Outer Banks. Built in 1914 in Hamburg, Germany, she was renamed Muskogee by the Standard Oil Company of New Jersey, when purchased. On her way to Nova Scotia from Venezuela, the tanker was alone, but not on a well-used route. It was hoped by the 34-member crew this would save them. But U-123 spotted the tanker on March 22, 1942, to which Hartigan described in his log as a Sunday roast. Getting into position, the sub let loose one G-7A torpedo from a stern tube at 5.06 p.m. local time. This missed, and the Muskogee took what countermeasures it could, which helped little, as at 5.56 p.m., a second torpedo struck true in the vessel's engine room. The Muskogee's power went out. It was time to abandon ship. As the men were trapped below with the ship sinking stern first, 16 minutes after being hit, only 10 men managed to get aboard two rafts. The rest went down, thousands of feet in the icy water. Then one of the life rafts turned over. Those men were now gone. Left was one raft with seven men, wondering what could possibly happen next. What happened next was that the triumphant Hardigan surfaced his sub right next to the smaller vessel to get a look at the survivors. With these men in shock, but coming around enough to hate the man before them, Hardigan coolly asked the captain, Master William W. Betts, the name of the ship, its nationality, and its registered tonnage, all for his warlock. What Hardigan did not write down was whether he offered assistance or supplies to the survivors as they were truly in the middle of nowhere and would surely die without aid, which is probably what happened as these men were never seen again. Adding insult to injury, Hardigan had taken a photo of the seven men before he left them to their fate. In the picture, one can see the many expressions from these men, from hatred to resignation. But the merchant marine wasn't the only one overwhelmed by the German subs. The U.S. military still had a ways to go before the threat of Admiral Donitz's U-boats would be behind them. By the spring of 1942, some 122 ships had been sunk or damaged just off the Outer Banks. Further, bodies washing up on shore was a daily occurrence, as was finding life raft riddled 
with bullet holes. But the greatest deterrent of swimming for the locals that summer would be not the bodies, though that was bad enough in itself to have underage kids come upon something like that. But no, it was the oil. Millions of tons of oil coming ashore, making recent headlines look like puddles. Much of the oil could be seen by the naked eye. But at times, if enough hours went by, then there would be a thin layer of sand over the oil, and one would not know of its presence until a foot was placed firmly in the sticky mess, which required something that became the second biggest money maker on the Outer Banks, oil removal items. The largest money maker now was the once dead scavenging for wrecked ships. But zooming out a bit, the loss of material here meant it was not reaching Britain, who needed these supplies to stay in the war and pursue their war aims. If the sinking of ships went on at this pace, who knew how much longer London could be an effective ally, which, of course, was the idea in the first place for Berlin. To visit the Outer Banks, even better, to vacation there, is to experience its open majesty. The last thing one would want in enjoying the sheer openness of the place is a rush of people. But that's exactly what happened to the locals during the spring of 1942. What with the Navy, Coast Guard, and Army sending additional personnel next to the new or expanded hospital setup, not to mention the numerous artillery units stationed there now, and all these people required housing, which meant a storm of laborers flooding the peninsula, along with Navy Seabees and the Civil Engineer Corps, to build barracks, ammunition dumps, radio and watchtowers, and, of course, living quarters. Now, normally, the locals, a world away from the world, would not open up to strangers. But these strangers were here to protect the people of the Outer Banks, so were accepted with open arms. On March 14, 1942, Ocracoke native Chris Gaskell was taking a walk along the beach on the southern end of Ocracoke Island, which, hundreds of years ago, was physically connected to Hatteras Island. In truth, Ocracoke and Hatteras Island, of which Cape Hatteras is where the long, thin island bends back inward, has been connected and separated a few times in history. But the last separation was back in September of 1846. Then a massive storm came into the area, and between its buckets of rain, the rising waters, and the wind, the land bridge disappeared. Back to Chris Gaskell. He was wary of seeing bodies pushed ashore, but instead found a framed certificate. It stated that Jim Baum Gaskell was now a third mate on the steam freighter SS Caribsey, operating out of New York. This document found in the surf, worried Chris, because Jim was his cousin, who had disappeared into the Merchant Marine after Pearl Harbor. Chris immediately told the Gaskell family and the Coast Guard of what he had found. Jim's family had run a local hotel on Ocracoke for years, though Jim's father, William D. Captain Bill Gaskell, was himself lost at sea in 1935. 
and Chris soon found that his information, as nerve-wracking as it was, was put together with another discovery that day. Someone else on that same beach had found an oar. On one side of that oar was etched SS Caribsi. The Gaskills could only imagine the worst had happened. Four days previous to this, the SS Caribsi was nearing the end of its latest run, having left Santiago, Cuba, and making for Norfolk, Virginia. At the time, she was passing by Cape Lookout, at the end of another peninsula to the southwest of Ocracoke Island. The crew of this 250-foot freighter had been nervous and so relieved at almost being done with their cruise, as their hold held 3,600 tons of highly combustible manganese ore. However, as far as the crew was concerned, echoed by the U.S. Navy and Coast Guard, the greatest moment of danger was still in their future, at Cape Hatteras specifically, as it is the part that sticks out the most, hence has to be passed by. To this end, the Navy recommended that the Caribsea slow down. That way, she would pass by Cape Hatteras during the day, supposedly when the ship, all ships, were at their safest. Meanwhile, third mate Jim Gaskell, just coming off of his watch, was asked by an officer if he was going to stay topside to watch for the Ocracoke Lighthouse, as many of the men who, certainly the ones who had not grown up on a coast, were going to do. But Jim explained to his superior that his family's hotel was right next to the lighthouse, and having seen it a thousand times, he would choose sleep. Hence, young Jim took to his berth below. And it was this decision that sealed Jim's fate. After a few hours into his sleep, two torpedoes struck the Caribsi. The first made impact at the number two hold, the second taking out the ship's boilers. With such damage, the ship would only remain above water for another three minutes. Not that it mattered to the 21 crewmen below decks. They were killed instantly, including Jim Gaskell. As fate would have it, only the seven men on deck or in the wheelhouse survived the two blasts. Three days later, the ore and frame certificate reached Ocracoke Island. The survivors, two officers and five crew, floated around on pieces of their former home for ten hours. Then, luckily, a ship was passing by and did not hesitate to pick up the men who were taken to their original destination, Norfolk, Virginia. When word of the wreckage reached the Gaskell family proper, Jim's sisters rushed to Norfolk to talk to the survivors, which is how the family found out that Jim was probably sleeping when the torpedo came through his wall. Also, sadly, that his deciding not to stay topside to see the lighthouse canceled out any chances of his survival. As for the washed-up ore, that was given to another Ocracoke resident, Homer Howard, who would make a cross out of the wood. At the bottom of it are two plates that read, In memory of Captain James B. Gaskell, July 2, 1919 to March 11, 1942. This cross, constructed from salvage of the ship upon which Captain Gaskell 
lost his life. And it is still there today, upon the altar of Ocracoke's Methodist Church. A picture has been put on the Facebook World War II podcast page. Of course, this entire event was seen as a glorious victory by Captain Lieutenant Erwin Roston and his crew of U-158. But as his successful strike had come during the daylight, Roston ordered U-158 to head southwest towards Onslow Bay, just southwest of where most of the attacks had taken place. There, lying low for two days, just southwest of this hiding place, U-158 came across the 523-foot-long SS John D. Gill on March 12, 1942. The John D. Gill, a tanker, currently had 142,000 barrels of oil on board and was on its way to Philadelphia from Texas. Only on her second voyage, the tanker heaved to near Carolina Beach, North Carolina, for a few hours, based on a warning from the Coast Guard, but then she was back underway. Roston's patience had paid off. At 9.10 p.m., a torpedo from U-158 hit the tanker in its number 7 tank. Right away, a hole was ripped into the tanker below the waterline which may explain why the released oil did not catch fire. Either way, it was time to abandon ship. As the crew rushed to the various life rafts, one crew member threw over a life ring that had a self-igniting carbide light. This was activated, and the flame found purchase with all the oil now around the ship. The crew went from panic to frantic in the seconds it took the flame to surround the ship. Still, needs must, the crew began to lower the life rafts. By the time the men managed to calm themselves down after the first Burma flame made its way around the ship, all but two of the lifeboats were beyond hope, numbers two and four. Fifteen crewmen were able to get aboard number two and lower it. Somehow, they got through the flames. Then, a raft with eight sailors and three men of the Navy Armed Guard managed again to defy the odds and paddle themselves away from the doomed tanker. This left lifeboat number four, whose luck had just run out, but the men aboard did not know it yet. Number four was loaded, and the men began to lower themselves down. However, it was then the ropes got jammed on the falls which tilted the boat to one side. All of the men fell out, right into the waiting flames below. Even worse, if that's possible, two of these men were pulled into the still-turning propeller. This left two other men hanging on the ropes, trying to figure out their next move. One of the men, Herbert Gardner, had a good grip, but knew his strength would give out soon. He told the other man to hold on, that they would figure this out. Then Gardner looked around to see what his options were. When he looked back, his comrade was gone. All that was left was his dangling rope. By the time Gardner got over his shock, the propeller below had quit turning. Now, only having to deal with watery flames, he let go and hoped for the best. 
When his head popped up from the waves, flames were there waiting for him to immediately begin to remove his flesh. And even though he had on his cork life belt, Gardner forced himself under and swam away from the boat. Popping up a few more times, he tried to gather air into his lungs before the flames around him could do their damage. Making this even harder, whether he was underwater or not, he could hear each explosion as the various individual tanks began to blow, which not so much caused the ship to sink versus simply tear itself apart. When all was said and done, the Gill lost 23 men that night, six officers, 13 crewmen, and four troops of the U.S. Navy Armed Guard. Some of the survivors were taken to Charleston, South Carolina, while others were transported to the Dosher Memorial Hospital on the southern end of North Carolina. There, the little hospital suddenly had more patients than they were used to, and besides, their needs were almost more than the newly trained staff could deal with. One Red Cross volunteer nurse, Josephine Hickman, said, We didn't think even half of them could hardly live. Some of them were so badly burned that the bandages were all over their heads. You just fed them in between the bandages. The medical staff had to work for 20 hours straight, but not one of those men brought in perished. As for Captain Roston, he and U-158 made good their escape by heading back to the northeast towards Cape Hatteras when they came upon another tanker, SS Oreo, on its way to Texas. Roston sent one well-placed torpedo that doomed the vessel. As such, the captain ordered all to abandon ship. But that's when the tanker crew found out their hell had just begun. As crewmen started piling into the various lifeboats, suddenly a shell came in from the sub's deck gun. The five men aboard lifeboat three died instantly, and the shooting continued. In time, the 28 survivors found themselves floating on various pieces of debris, hoping help was on the way. When the German sub left, some of the officers climbed back aboard the ship to assess the damage. But what they found was a ship that was too far gone. The men left the vessel and went back to their men. Later, the destroyer USS DuPont arrived and picked them up. Eight crewmen were never found. As for the Ario, she took more than a few hours to go down, just east of Cape Lookout. Now, the idea of shooting a crew while rushing to lifeboats is like shooting at pilots who have parachuted from their planes. Most Germans and some American historians say that the subcrews never fired on the merchant marine, per Admiral Donitz's orders. However, there are a few instances with multiple witnesses that said it did happen. And I'm sure at least a few Allied pilots were shot at while floating down during the Battle of Britain. This is not judgment, just simply an observation of human nature during war. And the post-attack shelling would continue. On April 2nd, the collier SS David H. Atwater was rendered useless by a torpedo. As the 23 crew members tried to flee their ship, they were all killed 
by the deck gun of U-552, commanded by Captain Eric Topp. This entire episode was witnessed by a Coast Guard patrol boat who were on their way to save the crew. Back to Captain Roasten. After his latest success, he returned to France at the end of March. Two months later, he and his were back at it, now operating south of the Outer Banks near Cuba and then the Gulf of Mexico. During this run, U-158 sank 12 more ships, becoming the fifth most successful U-boat patrol of the war. Just shy of two months of this voyage, U-58 was out of torpedoes and low on shells, though the hunting had been grand. On her way back to France, the sub came across the Latvian steam freighter Elveralda, 360 miles southeast of Cape Hatteras. Captain Roston used up his last rounds and then boarded the ship under the threat of torpedoing it. The Latvians could not know that this threat was hollow. Instead, Roston would open up the freighter's sea valves to sink her. Moreover, he took the freighter's captain and a Spanish crew member back to his sub. As he was on his way home, Roston thought of the many ships and the 187 Allied merchant lives he had taken. The hunting was good here, and he would return just as soon as he could. But what Roston could not know was that the wheel of fate may spin slowly for some, but it moves nonetheless. And U-58's turn had come. Besides his two prisoners, Captain Roston found several confidential documents that he felt needed to be radioed back home, ASAP. Thus, on June 30, 1942, he began a lengthy series of broadcasts on his wireless. These signals were picked up by Allied stations, and soon a PBM-3C Mariner flying boat, piloted by Lieutenant Richard E. Schredder, was sent to the sub's coordinates. Leaving from Bermuda, soon Shredder was in the area and picked up a radar contact. He had been flying low, but hiding in some clouds. When U-158 surfaced, Shredder picked his moment and dived, coming out of the sun. Ralston was caught completely off guard and further had no time to react when the flying boat dropped two depth charges that detonated right under the sub. Right away, the sub went down, but not by choice of Roston or his crew, and it would never surface again. According to eyewitness accounts, the crew of 158 died the way submariners feared most. First, the sub was crushed along with those inside, and if any survived, they soon drowned as the sub began its last journey, 16,000 feet to the ocean floor. In time, the residents of Ocracoke Island would hear of U-158's fate, but no tears were shed. The islanders were already all cried out over the loss of 22-year-old Jim Gasco. 